We're starting a new preaching series today um, on the power of God. And uh, the reason why we're doing this is because our faith doesn't just rest on persuasive teaching or uh, good arguments. or uh, It's not just uh, a set of inspirations to live our lives well. It's not even just an intimate relationship with God. It also rests upon the power of God. About, it rests upon God doing things in our lives, doing powerful and wonderful things in the lives of people on this planet. And so I don't think we talk about this enough. I, I don't think that we use this power that God has placed in our hands nearly enough. I think it, it, it is underused. It's a gift that God's given us. It's a grace that God has bestowed upon his church. And I think it goes underused amongst us. Would you agree with that? I think there's more. I think there's more that we can get hold of in God. I think there's more that God wants to do amongst us. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks just looking at the power of God. So today I'm going to look at the power of God over demonic oppression. And then next week, we're going to look at how God has power to redeem human beings, to give us a new identity. We're going to look at uh, at God's power to heal and God's grace over our physical bodies. And then we're going to look at uh, God's power to bring revival and transformation to whole communities and nations. Does that sound good? So today, focusing on Jesus the Deliverer, God's power over demonic oppression and Satan. I, I am not going to try and give you a comprehensive theology of good and evil this morning um, because I want to give time at the end to be able to do some responding, to be able to welcome the Holy Spirit and to receive some of the freedom and the deliverance that he loves to bring to us. So I'm not going to spend a long time kind of unpacking uh, a theology of good and evil and the, the um, conflict that there is behind the scenes of our experience. I just simply won't ha- wouldn't have time to do that. Um, and I'm going to move pretty quick. So um, if you want to follow some of the scriptures that I want to look at, uh, you're going to have to flick really quickly. Otherwise, just sit back and listen. Uh, and I'm just going to share some basic teaching about deliverance, about this ministry that Jesus has. And he has given to his church to set people free from the work of the enemy. And there may be people sitting here this morning that have just heard my title and think, mm, I'm not sure how comfortable I am with this subject. Talking about demonic activity, spiritual oppression. I'm not sure we should be looking to the devil to explain the evil and suffering in our experience. Surely that's an ancient perspective on issues that we can now explain in the natural and social and psycho- psychological ways. Why do we need spiritual power to deal with natural problems? It can seem a bit flaky. Some people feel that way. And if that's you, I kind of sympathize. Between you and me, I don't like over-spiritualizing things either, any more than you do. I have seen ministers draw conclusions about the spiritual condition of people and thought, do you know what? That just sounds like a pile of crap to me. I have, I have seen um, people who make it their ministry 
to uh, have a, a deliverance ministry. And some of these people seem to have mapped out the entire demonic realm. And that when they're ministering to people, they can minister with minute detail as to what is happening with the demonic in their life. And I think that goes a bit off-piste. I actually think that that departs from the Word of God. And it certainly departs from the practice of Jesus in the New Testament. He didn't hang around to have a conversation with with, uh, demonic spirits. There's once or twice where there's a kind of interaction because the demonic spirit speaks first. And basically, what he usually says is, shut up and get out. It's as simple as that. He doesn't hang around to kind of sketch out a genealogy or something. So I don't think we need to either. We're not asked to do that. Can we agree that this is potentially a messy area of ministry? One that has been handled badly sometimes in the past. And we might feel that we would do quite well just to leave it well alone. Has anyone ever felt like that? And then you read the Gospels. And demonic activity is on like every other page, isn't it? You, you, you go through the Gospels and just look at references to Satan or demons or demonic activity. And I don't think that's just because it was a cultural mindset. Obviously, that was an understanding at the time. There was much more of a free understanding of demonic activity at the time of Christ. And people talked about it in quite an open way, but maybe way more than we do now. But I believe my Bible. And I believe that when Jesus gets going, dealing with something in the scriptures, I should be taking notice because actually he's teaching me something. And Jesus talked about it a lot. More importantly, he made the task of setting people free from demons the very center of his ministry. There's actually no getting around it at all. In fact, John, his closest disciple, describes the ministry of Jesus in his epistle as a mission to stop what Satan is doing in people. 1 John 3, verse 8. When people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. That's one way of describing why Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He wants to undo the work of the demonic realm, the the damage that is done in people's lives. He wants to see people blessed. He wants to see light flood in. He wants to see wholeness where there has been captivity. And that's good news. And he modeled this as his first priority. Go through the Gospels. Almost every time that it says many were healed, it also mentions that many were released of unclean spirits. You can do the study yourself. When the, when the Gospels speak of people coming to Jesus because they heard he was in town, frequently it says that many sick and demonized people came. Matthew 8, verse 14. When Jesus came to Peter's house and he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, he touched her and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. Many. I don't like this rendering of demon possessed. I don't like the idea that anyone can be possessed by anything demonic, that can be owned by anything demonic, particularly. Um, it's that just 
doesn't sit with me very well. Uh, demon harassed, maybe. Um, almost like when, when we, you might see a piece of property. And a demon can move in in a very significant way. Like a person can move into a property. But, but he's a squatter. He doesn't own the house. He has no legitimate right to that place. And do you see what I mean? So if a, if a demon harasses your life and comes in, in in a really significant way, in a way that, that starts to take over and control, it doesn't mean that he has a right to be there. And uh, Jesus made it very clear that they don't uh, and sent them packing whenever he came into contact with them. But uh, what I want, want you to see here is that when the crowds were coming, healing was happening and lots of deliverance ministry. This was central. Jesus restoring lives by taking authority over spiritually charged issues and releasing people to live at peace. And it's actually very lovely. (laughs) Scores and scores of people would come from encounters with Jesus and they would go home with a brand new peace in some area of their lives, with a transformed life in some way that they had been controlled and their buttons had been pressed and they had, they had been behaving well in a way that was damaging their relationships and ruining the most significant relationships they had in their lives. And it, it had been causing them to function in such a way that, that they were limited in their life, that they could go no further. These were things that their nearest and dearest would have been keenly aware of. And they would go home different. They would go home without that same issue plaguing them the whole time. And people would come to them and say, what's happened to you? You're different. They could see it. It was a beautiful thing. And this was the same ministry that Jesus then passed on to his disciples. When he told his followers to go out into the villages to continue this ministry of the kingdom of God, what was the first thing he gave them? Power and authority over the demonic realm. It's the very first thing. So look in any of the Gospels. Matthew Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 13, afterwards Jesus went up onto a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. Gospel of Luke, Chapter 9, verse 1. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everybody about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. There's no escaping it. It's in every gospel. This is one of the main things that Jesus wanted his disciples to do, to throw out demons. And then he does the same with the even broader group of the 72 disciples. When he sent them out, this bigger group went out in twos and and they had to take their message to the villages and then return to Jesus and give their report. And they were super excited when they came back to Jesus. When Jesus sat them all down and then went through with them one by one, so what happened to you when you guys went out? What did you see? What happened? And they they were just on cloud nine. They were stoked because they'd seen so many people set free. They'd seen widespread freedom and peace and security and healing and families restored. And do you know what the main thing they reported back to Jesus was? Luke 10, 17 to 20. 20. 
they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. What did Jesus say? Yes, he told them. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Say, all the power of the enemy. wonderful. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among these snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. In other words, don't let our authority over the demonic realm become our identity. That's not what we're here for. That's not something that defines us. It's something that we have to do. It's a job that we have to do, and it's a beautiful job. When the people on the receiving end receive peace for the first time in years, when the darkness is chased away and the light comes in and people feel set at peace and, and, and feel free, it's a wonderful job, but it's, it's a job. Actually, what we should be rejoicing about is the fact that we belong to Jesus, yeah. that we are people of heaven, that we have a Father who calls us by name and that we belong to this wonderful, wide family that is characterized by him and not by anything in the darkness. It's a lovely passage. I think we could chew on this one for a while, but just for now, I simply want you to see what got Jesus' disciples so fired up as they watched the Holy Spirit at work. It was this beautiful instant change that came over people as they recognized the enemy's work and then destroyed it in Jesus' name. They watched freedom come in in front of their eyes. And it's what I love about deliverance ministry. It's the rapid transformation. It's not like some slow healing process, which can be great to watch too. It's much more instant. It's much more uh, one minute, the anxiety is there, the next minute it's gone. You know, one minute, that addiction can be there, the next minute it can be gone in a way that only God can do. And I love that. And hopefully we've all heard stories of how God has, with a word or with a a truth encounter or a power encounter, ministered to someone and someone has been transformed just in a moment of a touch of the Holy Spirit. Do you all have stories like that? Some of the most oppressive powers in human experience can be released. Heroin addictions lifted off people without any withdrawal symptoms. Just there one minute, gone the next. Suicidal people, instantly given rest and hope and a hunger for life. You name it, God has removed it. God can release us from anything, and he can do it powerfully and peacefully. And I think at times of blessing and revival, maybe with Kanye West, um, when God begins to move in power, There's always stories that come out of these times when people have been oppressed or struggling or battling with the same old cycles or mindsets. And when God begins to move, they can put their finger on a moment that in a meeting they felt God's presence right where they were in their seats. Or maybe they went down on the floor with a bit of prayer ministry because the Lord was moving really powerfully and they couldn't even really stand on their feet, so they ended up on the floor. And when they got up off the floor, the change was such that not even 10 years of therapy would have been able to touch that issue. God can do things in five minutes that it would take the whole of the NHS (laughs) decades to do. 
if they can touch it at all. Grateful for the NHS. But there are some things that our God needs to do. There are some areas of our lives that only God can reach in and transform. And it can be so powerful and it can be so quick. So we shouldn't be surprised that the New Testament crows about deliverance ministry. It's pretty special. And if you look at the early church, it was central to their practice too. It it wasn't just sort of with Jesus, and then when the early church was formed, they got on with other things like, you know, writing the rest of the New Testament and building building church hierarchies and structures. (laughs) The early church got on with this as a central ministry, and whenever you see healing in the book of Acts, usually you see deliverance as well in some way. So if you look at Peter, it says in Acts chapter 5, Uh, As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. That's so cool. I want to do that. (laughs) Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Love that. Look at the Apostle Paul. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. That's pretty cool as well, isn't it? I love that. So you've got this kind of dual ministry that's flowing in the early church of healing and deliverance, healing and deliverance. And sometimes you can't even tell which it is. So someone comes ill in some way, with a life brokenness, and it may be a, a physical infirmity. And sometimes they seem to treat it like a, 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 a spiritually held thing, and sometimes it's a physical thing. And sometimes it's a bit of both, and I don't think we always know which it is or, or how we can distinguish between it. All we know is that this person has a brokenness of some kind. And we have authority to go in and to pray and ask that God in his grace, would do something special. And I think the re- one of the reasons why healing and deliverance flow so much together is because our bodies and our souls are so connected, you know? And when you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't seem to distinguish between the two that much either. In Luke 13, you can turn there if you want, uh, in chapter, uh, Luke 13, verse, from verse 10, it says this, On the Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. So why was this woman bent double? Anyone? He saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. Don't really like that word, crippled. There it is. A woman who had been bent double, and Jesus discerned it was by an evil spirit. And then what did Jesus say to her? You are healed of your sickness. So he sees a woman who has some spiritual issue which has caused a doubling over of her body. And then when he speaks to her, he says, you're healed of your sickness. So which is it? Is it sickness or is it an evil spirit? Who cares? 
is the bottom line. What matters is she stood up, right? Jesus dealt with it as one thing. As he knew that when the kingdom of heaven came, when the Holy Spirit began to move and touched this woman's life, something spiritual was going on. There was something that happened 18 years ago that caused her to begin to double up some, in some way. I don't understand the mechanics. I just know that that's what it says in my Bible. And I've seen this in, in ways when I've worked with people, that sometimes you, they can put a finger on a time when something went a bit wrong. Something which has then caused a problem for years. And it's been a reoccurring issue. And it's, been, it's got worse and worse and worse and worse. And it needs a touch of God to, get, to, to undo something that happened back then that was causing all these problems. And when that thing is undone, whatever it is, it's amazing how then healing comes very quickly. And I love that. Just imagine your next door neighbor has been doubled up for 18 years. And if you just minister a touch from God and take authority over a situation, that person could be healed. Just imagine that. It would be wonderful. How do you feel about being a church that does deliverance ministry? Does it feel comfortable or familiar? Not really. Is it worth doing? It really is. If people will get their mobility back, you bet it is. It's worth us going through a little bit of awkwardness, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of something which puts, makes us vulnerable in order for somebody else to have years of disability or limitation lifted, right? So why don't we? Why don't we see a whole load of this kind of healing and peace released in our experience? We see some, but why don't we see more? I wonder if many of us are just a little bit afraid to go there. Either that it could be a scary experience for us, or an unpleasant experience for the person who may think we're just a bunch of nutters and turn their backs on Christianity forever. Anybody worry about that? I worry about that. I think this fear is based on some common misconceptions. So let's go for the first one. It's too scary to go there. I've seen the horror movies. I think that is a problem. The, 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 ho the horror movies paint such a horrible caricature. I'm not really one for hor horror movies. I don't really watch them. Um, but I've seen a few trailers. And it's enough to scare the life out of anybody and to stop anyone from even beginning to look at dealing with demonic things. There are occasions, very, very, very rare occasions, when someone has given so much space to the enemy, who has opened their life in such a comprehensive and come on in kind of way, that there is something quite resident that you've got to deal with. And you may find that as you're praying for someone, something speaks back. In which case, you can do what Jesus did and just say, be quiet and come out. We can deal with that, right? 
We have authority to deal with that. But that's like 1%, or less than 1%. That like never happens. In fact, if you said, Lord, use me for deliverance ministry, I want to see people set free in your name. I want to see people uh, know peace where they haven't known peace. I want to see people restored. Use me. You could spend your entire life praying for people and seeing them restored and never have any massive demonic manifestation like that and never have anything spooky or scary come back at you because it's a rare, rare, rare thing, all right? And I think when people think of deliverance ministry, they think of the kind of shrieking and writhing about on the floor and foaming at the mouth, right? (laughs) It's enough to put anyone off, isn't it? Very unlikely, okay? This is... 99% 99% of deliverance ministry comes, uh, is about destroying lies. It's about destroying the lies that have set themselves up in people's lives. Lives that kind of worm their way into your soul and begin to affect your character, begin to affect your personality, begin to damage your relationships. It's belief systems that get constructed that then affect how we react to the world. Because lies is how... The demonic realm gains, gains access to most people's lies. Um, this is how it, how it works. Basically, the, the enemy will come in, and he will throw lies at you frequently throughout your life. The Bible describes the enemy as the, a, a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. It's his language. It's what he does. Okay? So we will all experience this. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Uh, throughout our lifetimes, the enemy will sometimes come and knock on our door and present us with a lie. Something that he wants us to take on and believe in some way. And we have a choice whether we receive that um, and we sign for it and we bring it into the house or whether we say, no thanks, I'm not, uh, that, that doesn't line up with what I know is to be true. What God's shown me is not really part of my life. Slam. Um, that's what we're supposed to do. But sometimes he's a bit sneaky and he gets something through. And it's usually at a time when we're vulnerable or through trauma or something like that, when our worldview has just been shaken in some way. And it's amazing how people can say the wrong thing and it can come through people sometimes. Sometimes it can just be a thought that's dropped in your mind. And for the first time, you agree with it. And it's a negative thought. And it's amazing how that can become a spiritually charged issue in your life and begin to set you off on the wrong track. Let me give you an example. Um, and this is, this is one of those, those ones that comes from a time of vulnerability. So when I was really little child, when I was in primary school, I was terrible at literacy. I couldn't really read or write very well at all. I was dyslexic. They didn't know that back then. But I was a very, very late developer. So um, my handwriting was very scrawly. It still is. But my handwriting was terrible when I was in primary school. And my reading speed was so slow, it was a a real struggle to read a book. And so I I just didn't. (laughs) I just read as little as possible. I was like allergic to books. And as I progressed through secondary school, I was clearly falling quite a long way behind. My spelling was shocking. My punctuation just didn't really happen at all. Um, And there was concerns about it. But but teachers over the whole of my primary school sort of confirmed in me that I was never going to be very good at reading and writing. And not because they were trying to damage me, but because they were reflecting on my ability. In fact, I was in year six before they let me have a handwriting pen. 
I was using a pencil until year six when all of my buddies got them in year four. And that still upsets me. Um, <laughs> but I remember, for some random reason, um, and I think it was probably to give me more confidence and to help me, my mum entered me into a Bible reading competition. Have I told you this story before? Okay. It's, it's a problem when you preach in the same place all the time. You can tell the same stories. Um, my mum decided to enter me into a Bible reading competition. This is something that crazy Anglican people do from time to time to their kids. They set up this room, and then they get all these kids, and they have to read out a Bible passage. And whoever reads the Bible passage out the best gets an award. Who would do that to children? Okay, so for some reason I was entered into this Bible reading competition and I was given this passage to read. And I, I, as usual, I avoided reading it. So I hadn't really practiced it, but for some reason I went along with it. And there I was, sat in this dingy old vestry uh, in the back. And suddenly I had this terror come over me, as in I've got to get out there in front of a whole bunch of parents and I've got to read this. And I must have been about eight years old. I, start, I was terrified. And I didn't know how to deal with it, and I didn't know what to say. And I sat there, and I remember I was sat in like a, one of those black plastic bucket seats, and I was wearing a heavy pair of brown corduroy trousers. And I just wet myself. I filled that black chair. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And when it came to my turn, this guy said, OK, Adrian, you're next up. You need to go and read your passage. I just said, no. I'm not doing it. And he said, you need to do it. They're all waiting for you. And I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I thought, if I get up, they'll see the puddle, and I'm not doing that. I'm going to sit here until everyone's out of this room. I'm not moving. And so this guy went out to the crowd, and he said, sadly, uh, Adrian was supposed to be, I was Adrian back then, Adrian was supposed to be uh, sharing next, but um, I'm afraid he's too scared to do it, so we're going to move on to the next person. And I sat there just feeling about this big. And you know what? That day, I made like a covenant with myself. I am never going to be exposed in this way again. I am never going to be made to read out loud ever in my life again. That followed me all the way through secondary school. I, I had, whenever I, there was a chance I'd have to read aloud in class, I was, I, suddenly this massive fear came over me. And I remember um, I did A-level theatre studies because I really loved drama. I'm a bit of a thesp at heart, and I liked, I liked acting, and I liked being around theatre, and I thought I'd, I'd really enjoy that, but I thought they might make me read out loud. So I made my theatre studies tutor promise that he would never make me read a script aloud in my group. I'll come and do your, your theatre studies course, but I, as long as you make sure I don't have to read. And bless him, uh, to his credit, he never asked me to do that. I could always go away and learn the lines, then come back. But I was never one of the readers that explored a script as a group. It wasn't until university that I was sat in a pub talking with someone about how I couldn't read the Bible. That this guy said, that's rubbish. Who told you you can't read the Bible? Well, I've never been able to be much of a reader. Whenever I read the Bible, I just don't understand it. So I sort of read a few words, and then I close it and just hope that I might connect with God in some way. He said, that's rubbish. He said, you and me, Thursday night, come to my house. And so I went to this guy's house. And... Um, 
first thing we did was talk about why I thought I couldn't read. And I said, it's always been the way. I just, I just can't read. I especially can't read out loud. And he just looked me in the eye. He said, that's not true. We're going to pray right now that that lie is broken off your life. And we prayed a simple prayer right there in his living room. Uh, and I didn't ride around on the floor or foam at the mouth or throw up or something like that. <laughs> but I just felt the peace of God come. And we just prayed for maybe two or three minutes. And then we said, right, let's get our Bibles. And so he, he, he said, what should we look for? And I said, oh, I don't know, I can't read the Bible. Oh, okay, maybe I can. Um, and, uh, and then he said, well, who do you know in the Bible? I said, well, I know a lot of the Bible characters because, you know, I've been around them my whole life. And um, he said, well, let's look at Peter, right? Let's look at Peter. Let's find out everything we can about Peter. And so we looked in concordances and stuff. And... and uh, we, we started to find out about Peter, and I was writing this stuff down. I worked out that he, he was married. And in this same, this same uh, study that I was doing with this guy, Brian, um, just before that meeting, I'd asked him if I could marry Ma- I'd asked the Lord if I could marry Mary, and we, they asked him to give me a sign. And in this Bible study, God gave me this incredible sign that it was okay to marry Mary. And I shared this, I don't know, I shared this with, with Brian. He said, so not only can you read the Bible, you can also hear God speak through the Bible. And he can speak right into the very situation, the very question you're asking. I walked out of there thinking, I'm going to devour this book. I can do this. What would have happened to my life had I not had that power encounter with God? I wouldn't be doing this, would I? I'm standing up here before a church of people reading. And I'm reading scripture on a weekly basis. If Brian hadn't have looked me in the eye and said, that is not true, and we're going to pray about that, I would have had a completely different life experience. That is often what deliverance ministry looks like. There is a problem in your life. There is a stronghold of some kind in your life. There is something which is not functioning, something which is holding you back something that is causing you to not be able to be the fullness of who you are. And one day the Holy Spirit will just say, right, that, I'm dealing with that now. You don't need to live that way any longer. I'm going to lift that off you today. And I think all of us would be in our comfort zone with that, wouldn't we? Do you all feel like you could pray for someone in that way? It's very, very simple. So that's the first thing. It's not scary. It's not like the horror movies. Misconception number two. We don't have the authority to really help people or to see them released. Some of us don't believe that we have the authority to do anything about these issues. We may say, I'm not a faith healer. I'm not an ordained person. I'm not a qualified exorcist. It's amazing the things we can construct as the reason why we don't do things. No, you're, you may not be any of those things, but you're a son or a daughter of God. And you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. And you have the Word of God richly within all of you. I know, because most of you I've been preaching to for the last five years or more. Um, And you're following the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and get on with it. You're following the one that said, you have 
authority over all of the power of the devil. We just repeated that verse a minute ago. Now go, heal the sick, throw out demons, live the gospel. You have all authority that you could possibly need in your hands to deal with any of these issues. Conversely, Satan has no authority. He has been stripped of all authority over our lives. Colossians 2 verse 15, Jesus disarmed the demonic powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So any suggested authority that Satan has over your life is just smoke and mirrors. It's lies. It's what he does. But actually there is no authority there. There is no contest If we have faith in Christ, we can gently take authority in any situation. Demonic influence has no legitimate authority to stay when we insist that a person is released. Smith Wigglesworth, one of the greatest heroes of our faith. Mr. Smith Wigglesworth often prayed for release for uh, for people, and he told the story of one night while he was asleep. He'd been having terribly frightening dreams. And at some point, he awoke, aware of a demonic presence in the room. He looked around the room, and there, near the foot of his bed, he saw an an image of Satan himself. With a sigh, Smith simply said, Oh, it's just you. And he turned over and went back to sleep. This is what he, one of the reports of his. I love that. That's a great picture about where we stand as believers against these things. We don't need to have a single shred of fear. We're already empowered and anointed to deal with every demonic influence we might encounter. So so first thing um, was when I remember what it is. Um, Yeah, we don't need to be afraid. Second thing, we don't have authority to, to help people get released. Another misconception. Third reason why we don't see such deliverance ministry happening at the moment, it's simply not our practice. I think that's the number one reason. We just don't do it. We don't get around to disciplining ourselves, to to praying in this way for people, and to talking about it. We have the power to deal with darkness and addictions and spiritual oppression, but we're just not used to going there. We have the power to release at our disposal, so why don't we use it? Why don't we do it? It's not our power, it's God's power, but he has supplied us with his power. It's a bit like the power supply to your house. So you don't own the actual power supply to your house. The main power supply that comes uh, to your fuse board in your house, you don't own that. Um, It belongs to the national grid. Um, So if you want to move that main core cable into your house, you have to ask them to move it because it's their property. You can't move it yourself. But the power supply, though it's not our possession, we can use whatever we want, can't we? It's at our disposal. What would you make of a person that had mains electricity to their house and never ever bothered flicking a light on? But just, you know, it eked their way through winter. I had an auntie called Pat. She was... Uh, the eldest of my dad's seven sisters. And she lived in uh, a little cottage just outside Ledbury, and it was like from another era. 
It didn't have mains electricity, and uh, it didn't have mains water either. It had a spring-fed water supply. And we used to go and visit Auntie Pat a couple of times a year, and it always used to really irritate me how long that woman could let the, the light die before she'd reluctantly go out to the outhouse, fire up the generator, and give us a bit of light. I remember sitting around the kitchen table with it getting gloomier and gloomier and gloomier. I, I remember the smell of it, because it's paraffin lamps most of the time <laughs> in every room. Um, but occasionally she'd treat us to a fire-up of the Jenny uh, and flick a few lights on. Um, and it was like a last resort. And I think it's like that with us. We have the power of God at our disposal, but we just don't use it. And sometimes life can get gloomier and gloomier and gloomier. And when we really can't function anymore, then we might cry out to God and say, God, we need some of your power in this situation. That's what we're like. And I think we've got to change it. Though God has supplied us with all the power we could ever want, we're used to doing without. We soldier on with our lives getting gloomier and gloomier. I need you to drive out the gloom in my life, God. That needs to be the prayer that we have. I really like rustic houses, but I don't like spiritual darkness. I don't like oppression or spiritual depression or fear or rage or addiction or any of these things that just rob us of the best from our lives. They cast a shadow over our lives and they damage our most significant relationships. They frustrate God's wonderful purposes for our lives. I nearly got knocked out of, of this. But thankfully, God rescued me. And it, I just think it would be so sad if people stayed in their struggle and their gloom for year after year after year just because we weren't in the habit of applying the power of God. Amen? So we need to learn to flip the switch and to see God flood in with his light. How do we know when someone needs releasing from demonic oppression? Sometimes it's obvious. It could be attacks of fear or self-loathing or anger or whatever, and it's obvious. Sometimes it needs to be spiritually discerned, where we need, someone comes and they, and they realize they've got an issue, they're stuck in some way, and it takes a little bit of praying around and asking the Holy Spirit, and it might take a period of time before you discern what that thing is. And then once you, you can put your finger on it, then you can deal with it. But once we've identified the problem, we need to know how to set people free. And it is ABC. It, it, it's not rocket science. So I've, I'm going to put it up. Okay, ABC, the first one, agree with God. That's the first thing. If we sense there is something amiss, rather than agreeing that that is how it's always been, how it's always going to be, uh, how it is in my family for generations. You know, this is me. This is what, what has always been there. Instead, we agree with God. Is this what God says over your life? Is this true? That's what happened with me with the reading. Somebody looked me in the eye and said, that's not true. Let's agree with what God says over your life. Let's look at what is true. So for, number one, agree with God. When you've got God's mindset for the situation, you know how you're going to be praying. Number two, ask the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus said... Um, if I, by the finger of God, cast out a demon, then you know the kingdom of heaven has come among you. By the finger of God, he means the Holy Spirit. So actually, it's not our power. It's the Holy Spirit. And actually, when the Holy Spirit comes, he kind of takes over, and we just get to kind of hang out and watch what he's doing. So ask the Holy Spirit to come. 
and simply repent, release, and receive. So sometimes there's some turning away to do. Sometimes you have to acknowledge that actually my life has been flowing in this direction, in this area. I need to say, actually, that's not me anymore. I'm going to turn in the opposite direction and walk towards God. Sometimes there, there is a practice, something that you've been doing in your past, a sin pattern that began at a certain time. And you've got to turn from that sin and say, actually, no, I don't want that in my life anymore before you can receive God's freedom from it. You've got to start to hate that thing that has come in. Sometimes there's a person to forgive. You know? When you recognize that that root of bitterness goes back to that moment when somebody really hurt you. And you think, I want to be free of that issue. But you know what? You've got to forgive that person first. Because while you're holding on to that bitterness, you can't release that thing that's been damaging your life. So you've got to open your hands to whatever it is and, and start to consciously say, actually, that's not me. I don't want that in my life. And start walking towards God. Okay? That's repentance. We also need to release it. Consciously say, right, I'm pushing this out of my life right now. I'm agreeing with what God says. And right now, in this moment, with the Holy Spirit, I am pushing this out. I'm saying, no, I'm not having this anymore in my life. I'm laying hold of the truth. I'm releasing that thing to God. And then we receive. So we don't end up an empty vessel. We actually, we're in that place where the darkness has been ruling in your life. You then ask for the light of God. You then ask for the blessing, the opposite of what it's been. So if... Uh, if your issue has been, say, um, poor self-image, let's take that one. It can be a big one. Rather than just asking that, that to go and then leaving a void, instead you, you're asking them to receive the beauty and the joy of the Lord. You're asking them to give them fresh eyes when they look in the mirror. Fresh thoughts about who they are. Fresh thoughts about how they are and how they're perceived by God and how they're perceived by themselves. You're asking for waves of affirmation and peace. Hallelujah. We want to go for full restoration. Not just um, back to zero, if you like. Not just sort of set to nothing, but full restoration. We want it to be that that part that was darkest in their life becomes the most shining part of their life. So that when people who know them best see them after this time, where God has done something special in their life, they say, you are completely different. What has changed? And that we can share the testimony of our lives. Let's press in for that. The best of the best. Amen?